Welcome and thank you for joining us for the latest Coaching Conversations with the AOEC podcast. My name is Gina Lodge and I'm the CEO at the AOEC. In this episode, we'll be exploring the critical need to democratise coaching for young people. And today we are joined by Chloe Garland, founder of Quarter Life, and Charlie Stainforth, co-founder of Circle. Chloe graduated with a degree in philosophy, but not knowing what was next for her, she employed the services of a coach who helped her discover what truly motivates her in life. From that experience, Chloe says that the penny dropped for her and she wondered why other young professionals were not given this opportunity in education. That led to her training to become a coach and she set up Quarter Life, which helps those in their 20s to lead more fulfilling lives and careers. Charlie started his career working with young adults from underrepresented groups and quickly learned that there were many aspects blocking their access to professional careers, including communication, leadership and people skills. Recognising that teachers have little time to teach young people about the importance of people skills, Charlie has gone on to establish Circle. At Circle, he and fellow co-founder Adrian Blair are on a mission to build a world where anyone can learn to lead. And they believe the way to get there is through real world coaching experience. So Charlie and Chloe, to start off with, let's look at the COVID-19 pandemic. The jobs market has been very difficult and uncertain for young people since the start of the pandemic. So much so that those in the under 25 demographic had acquired the tag Generation COVID because they are the age group most likely to have faced cuts to their earnings, education and employment prospects. What has been your personal experience of the difficulties young people have faced during the last couple of years? Charlie, should we start, start with you? Yeah, really good question, Gina. So I think it would probably be helpful for me to explain a little bit about myself and how Circle engages with young people. And then I can kind of tell you about the impacts that that's had, COVID has had on them, or that at least that we've seen from the demographic that we work with. So to kind of give you context, essentially Circle is a, a leadership development program that focuses on training managers in companies and underrepresented young people aged between 18 and 24 from outside those companies how to be more inclusive leaders using coaching skills. And the course that they go through is all about learning how to coach each other and get coached. So they, they get both sides of that. And that's kind of really, you know, to the topic, democratizing coaching and building equality between people who may be in work and people who are before work. So underrepresented young people. And we focus on underrepresented, primarily looking at young people from low socioeconomic backgrounds across the whole of the, the UK, Europe, North America, even South Africa and other parts of Sub-Saharan Africa. And, you know, normally the, the way we determine that is whether they they have access to bursary or whether they would qualify for a bursary to get into further or higher education. So it kind of gives you a sense of the demographic that we we support in terms of 18 to 24 year olds. And the thing that COVID really did in terms of just our day to day conversations with our cohorts of future leaders, we call them, was that most of them are providing or, or working to provide for their family part-time jobs, or just to put themselves through education. And the majority of the work that they did, as you can imagine, is in retail or hospitality. So in shops, COVID shut down all the shops, or in restaurants and bars, COVID shut down all the restaurants and bars. So that was a, that actually we saw, you know, we have hundreds and hundreds of applications from young people to do the circle program, but we saw a spike during COVID even more so because they weren't even able to, to work in the normal jobs they were doing. So they're looking for any other opportunity to improve themselves and upskill themselves. And so that's how it came across for, for us, really. 
Thank you. It's had quite an impact. And, and as you say, different sectors, highlighting the different sectors that have been worst affected. Chloe, how has COVID impacted the work you do? Yeah, so again, it would be helpful to talk a little bit about what young professionals means in terms of how I work with them. So I work with generally young people between the ages of 20 and 35 who are in the workplace already. And uh, my company is called Quarter Life, which is all about the idea of a quarter life crisis when you get to a point in your, your career and you're really struggling with engagement and not knowing which way you want to turn. And when you're in your 20s, we have this, I call it almost like the holy trifecta of stress. One is that we've got the stress of wanting to buy a home you know, we've got all this like pressure that you want to buy a home by 30 to find the love of your life as the second one. And the third one is to find your career, what you want to do for the rest of your life and excel in it. And when it came to COVID, it made those pressures even more acute because suddenly you're not meeting anybody. Suddenly you are stuck in your job or you're on furlough. So you don't even have the opportunity to prove yourself. And it was incredibly challenging because all of those, those symptoms of feeling that crisis were just were just uh, ameliorated made made incredibly intense so stuff that we all know about is obviously people not being able to find jobs and there being a lack of the job market but I think also the sort of psychological pressure of that on people and on on what people thought that they should be doing at that age massively increased however having said that I think for a lot of people it forced their hand to make them start to make them start thinking about what they really want in their life because often it's very difficult to make big changes in your your career in your lifestyle if you're sort of quite comfortable and what I've noticed in the one-to-one one coaching that I'm doing and training sessions that I've been doing in companies is that for some people it forced their hands to make big changes that has that has impacted them positively as well it was quite interesting because they've almost had to start thinking about what are their values what's actually really really important to them and aligning their lives to do that so those are the fortunate you know, those who have been fortunate to have experienced some positive out of such a difficult two years. Gosh, it does bring it home, doesn't it? When you when you start to look at what's actually happened. And I think, so things I've heard also are about the, the changes in a workplace generally. So we went from all oh, having to work from home. Now, so some young people seem to really like that and like the flexibility it gives. But there's also, I've been hearing that people are now starting going to go back to offices in London or wherever. And mostly it's younger people that are going back first because they also want that human connection. And that's maybe the part of your life when you you want to do that and rather than have the space. So so just love your, your both of your opinions on what have you heard about during the pandemic, people actually, young people wanting to either, do they feel happy working from home or do you think they feel happier going and connecting and working in a building, not necessarily an office, you know, restaurant or wherever together? Yeah, it really depends on what kind of home they've got, right? You know, if you if you are sharing with lots of other people and you don't have a, a space that you can, except your bedroom where you can do Zoom calls and stuff, it's obviously really difficult. But then to people who've got a space, then maybe that's that's their preference is to, to be able to stay at home. But I don't know, I'd be curious to hear, Chloe, like you've obviously got a big range of clients. Where are most of them if they're between 20 and 35 when you're doing those sessions? Are they face-to-face or are they virtual? And where, where are where is everyone? Almost all of my sessions are now virtual. And I think, Charlie, that's, that's exactly what I would have said as well, is that for the majority of young people, especially if they're living in a big city like London, their bedroom 
is their office and they're spending 24 hours a day in their rooms, which is so, so challenging. But I don't think I can have a universal answer to whether or not people have preferred working from home to prefer going in, into their workplace because everybody's different and it kind of depends where you are in terms of introversion and extroversion. I think everybody can somewhat agree though that generally people are looking for flexibility. So, and I think that's the same with, I think that's the same with young people. So I, I couldn't say that there's a general, oh, I, they prefer working from home or going into the office. I think the flexibility though, that it's given them also gives them autonomy. And that's something that I hear when I work, with people talk a lot about values and a lot about what motivates them. And the flexibility is just so, so powerful because suddenly they have more ownership over their over their work. And there's that sort of Daniel Pink theory of motivation, which is what fundamentally motivates people. I think it's purpose, autonomy and mastery. And I think I think the autonomy part has really improved over COVID because suddenly it's like, oh, actually, it's a Friday. I, I want to work from home today. So I think that's been really powerful. When it comes to coaching as well, I was just going to say, in terms of people's access to coaches and, and being coached, getting used to a virtual environment has yeah, enabled that so much more, I think. Traditionally, most executive coaches, for example, you know, like uh, Wisdom 8, Catherine Tolpa, who, who runs um, the Association for Coaching. We, when I first met her, she was like, I do all of my coaching face-to-face or a lot of it. I go to their offices and, you know, that's that's really valuable. And that's quite often because certain execs aren't necessarily used to or weren't used to doing everything through video call, whereas COVID's kind of forced people to to get onto video conferencing. It's really interesting. I think that's, a, in terms of democratizing, that's a, that's a first step. Now, obviously, again, we go back to the same challenges. Actually, not everyone has access to a smartphone, but still being able to connect with people and realize that coaching is just as valuable, sometimes even more valuable. And I'm sure, Chloe, you'll you'll say this with the the option to be virtual and to not have to travel somewhere or to kind of have all the the time spent either side of the coaching. And, And also there's a certain safety zone. There's a certain distance with the virtual format that enables you to probably go into once you're used to it go into the coachy zone a bit more and we do you know we do this in the circle program we operate in about 20 different countries now because it's virtual whereas before we had a few we had a few programs that were virtual but we did quite a lot face to face and a lot of the more traditional kind of corporate businesses were like oh we want to do face to face stuff whereas the kind of tech giants that we were working with they were all like oh yeah virtual's fine we've been doing this for ages so it's kind of just got everyone on the same page and, and that's a, that's got to be a plus for, for access Yes, it's interesting to hear you say that because so there is, as you're saying, a whole range of possibilities. It has given another option. You know, it doesn't sound as if there's any wrong or right. It's just there is another option and it can be put into the mix. I love the point also about the younger generation now wanting more flexibility and not wanting to follow, let's say, potentially an outdated business model of nine to five or nine to 10 or whatever, our, you know, sort of crazy hours sometimes people work. So that could be interesting to see if there's a change that comes out of this gradually. So going to look now at a bit of a sort of the skills gap between education and work. So CIM, Chartered Management of Institute, found in its research, which was published in late 2021, 80% of employers believe that current graduates do not arrive fully equipped with the skills they need to be work ready. So this basically saying, obviously, education isn't preparing people, um, young people for work. It also listed the most crucial skills needed in the workplace as teamworking, critical thinking, and problem solving and communication. Similarly, the Careers and Enterprise Company has been releasing regular insights into student career readiness. 
And they reported in March 2022, this year, so this month, that there had been an improvement in young people gaining the skills they need to start work, with its data telling us that students rated their skills most strongly in the areas of teamwork, staying positive and listening. However, the areas they lack confidence in is in problem solving and leadership. So that's, I mean, there's quite a lot to sort of um, digest straight off, but there's some very interesting points in there that we can dissect. So for both of you, which soft or employability skills have you seen lacking and how is coaching helping to develop the skills gaps that those young professionals may have? It's sort of interesting because, I mean, as a coach, we're not involved with somebody's day-to-day if you're working as an executive coach. So there is a limit to, because we're seeing them through such a narrow aperture, there is a limit to, to what we can see. But there's one thing that I've noticed from the side of thinking about young professionals when they're already employed. It'll be interesting, interesting to hear what Charlie says on the, other, on the other side. And we often focus again on what is lacking and with young people. And there is so much that they have that we don't even realise because because they're just so innovative and so aware and so self-aware. But the thing that I've noticed that have come up again and again is about being proactive and being resourceful. I'm talking a lot recently about the idea of being an entrepreneur, so being entrepreneurial, but within the confines and within the sort of protective shell of being an employee. And one thing that I have noticed, unfortunately does kind of feed into a bit of a narrative and a stereotype around young people, is that as a young professional, there's somewhat of an expectation mindset of this is what I expect from my work and it needs to kind of happen to me rather than making it happen. And I suppose that's coming out of school and and university where everything is somewhat spoon fed to you. And so something that I often find is lacking is the you know the idea of a kind of circle of influence and what you can control and I think young people absolutely underestimate how much of their career is in their control and how much that they can do within their jobs and so you kind of pick apart that and it's very easy to be like oh you know they expect the world but actually I think it comes down to confidence so the sort of soft skill and the, the is, is the confidence of and especially if, if you're from a low income or low socioeconomic background you're not going to go into a, your first job and suddenly think that you should be in every room and that is the difference between, you know, if somebody's been privately educated, they think that they deserve to be in every room that they're in because they've never been told anything different. So it's, I think it's quite easy to say, oh, you know, these young people, they think that everything needs to be handed to them. But I, I tend to think it's like, well, actually, a lot of young people don't have the confidence because they've never been told that they what they can do. And this is sort of bringing back to coaching. And this is why coaching is so powerful, because at a most fundamental level, that's what coaching does is it increases your circle of influence. It, I like the idea of like that sort of iceberg where you've got the tip of the iceberg and then you can see the big bit underneath and the tip is what people think that they can do and then the underneath is what they actually can do and, and I think coaching is shining a light on what is possible so that's what I think has been has been lacking is that sort of proactivity and resourcefulness and, and entrepreneurial spirit of taking agency and taking control of their careers. I love that I completely completely agree with you as well like there's such a Young people generally, young professionals or young people before they're professionals are just so underestimated. And they're also measured against the benchmark that the people who are in power or who are older most often had when they were young people, <laughs> you know, and the world that they had when they were at that stage, rather than actually what's what the stage is now. You know, I think as well, it's so common to have kind of aspersions cast onto to young people in terms of they're lacking these skills. But completely, as Chloe said, so often with the most capable, it's actually the imposter syndrome, the lack of confidence that prevents them from going, you know what, I can do this, actually, I have a huge amount to add. And actually, my perspective is now 
so valuable that these these organizations and these professionals will get a huge amount from what I have to say or, or from my ideas. And coaching really brings that out. So if they are being coached, you know, the whole point is to enable them to do their best thinking and to explore what is underneath the surface of the water. They, they know the tip of the iceberg, but like they don't realize how massive the whole iceberg is, like their whole capacity, their whole knowledge. And when you start to give someone space, and you start to give someone, you know, the time to be able to reflect and come up with the solutions to their own challenges and steps to get towards their own goals without having to wait for to be told what to do by someone else who knows better than you. Suddenly they they go, wow, actually I can achieve a huge amount. And we see it. There are so many young entrepreneurs now who are kind of becoming entrepreneurs through you know, mechanisms and means that uh, and really successful entrepreneurs that didn't even exist five, 10, 15 years ago. You know, if you, if you think about the influences of the world, for example, I completely agree. It's all around confidence. And I would just add the, the coaching that you can do to four people. So you can be the coach to the coachee who is a, a young person, young professional or someone who's not yet a professional is really helpful for confidence. But I think the thing that we've discovered at Circle that is even in many ways greater or a really powerful combination is teaching someone how to coach someone else because coaching so often is seen as this sort of formal one-to-one exec coaching kind of sit down and i'm going to contract with you and i'm going to say that we've got this much time and then we're going to go into the coaching whereas actually coaching in and of itself and i've said this to you before gina i think john whitmore called it emotional intelligence in action and it's just be- it's just being emotionally intelligent and drawing things out of people with powerful questions and really good attentive active listening and paraphrasing to be able to help them think. And so at Circle, what we do is treat those young people, and obviously in, in Circle's instance, these young people are from underrepresented groups, so already they potentially lack confidence because they don't see role models in professional spaces. And we put them as equals with professionals in companies like McKinsey and Google, some of the, the most well-renowned companies in the world. And we say, you are equals. And in fact, young people, future leaders, you're going to coach this McKinsey manager first, and they go, oh, no way, I could never do that. And then we obviously train them, give them a bit of training, you know, which is the basis of, of coaching. They go and do it. And they're like, oh, my word, I can't believe I helped this person who's managed to get into McKinsey just through this technique that I've learned, which is all about being super curious and authentic and enabling them to think and get to a solution and then being thanked by that person who's a professional and sometimes even a CEO in a company. They go, wow, you really helped me then. That in itself is the biggest confidence booster and suddenly makes anyone really sort of go, you know what, I, I, I do think I could be a leader. I think I could genuinely help people to do their best thinking and, and get to the solutions themselves. I think that is the, the purpose of this conversation is about democratizing coaching as in it's as if it's like a passive thing that happens to someone. But actually, I think it's democratizing coaching in terms of understanding of how to coach people or use coaching skills and also receive coaching from other people and create cultures of coaching. And that hopefully should empower kind of everyone at the same time. So these kind of skill gaps won't then exist, hopefully. Mm. What I love about Charlie's business and with Circle is it, as you were describing it, it's like a great leveler. And interesting, you talk about imposter syndrome, which I, I really, I'm just getting kind of annoyed with that word because it almost sounds like it's a, a disease. The reason why we experience low confidence and quote imposter syndrome is because we compare what's going on inside our brains with what we can see. So we compare our insides with everybody else's outsides. So we think we've got, we go into this, our work and we're stressed and we're struggling and then we 
see everybody else who seems to have it all sorted. And so we have a positive distortion of what we think is going on in the world. And there's a really fancy term for it. It's called pluralistic ignorance, when we're ignorant of everybody's struggles. And so what Charlie does is so interesting because what you're doing is this young person is going in and coaching somebody from Google and having the experience of, oh my goodness, they're having the same doubt, self-doubt as I do. But I thought that they'd have it perfectly. And it's so acute because obviously they work at Google. Like that, you know, these people are on are on a massive pedestal. So when suddenly a young person sees that they struggle on a day-to-day basis, you're completely leveling out the playing field. And that's something that I encourage a lot of companies to do is talk about what's going on for them, talk about their their difficulties so that you can share what's going on in your mind so that everybody's like, okay, my, my incredible manager who I think is a superhero, oh, she's also struggles with her mental health. So I, I totally see how that works, Charlie, and how, how powerful that is because you're not just telling people, oh, everybody is the same. You're showing them like directly. Yes, that's fantastic insights because the perception, as you say, that leaders are almost superhuman, but actually they don't make mistakes or they don't do anything wrong. So when you see a human-facing leader who actually shows vulnerability, doesn't try and cover up for the fact that they've made a mistake as well, it's actually quite refreshing to young people and and actually to, to the whole organisation, I think, really, because the gap between leadership sometime in a company and, and a new starter. And I, I can actually remember when I started, I worked at Shell years and years ago. My first career was at Shell. And there was one particular very senior manager who used to just sort of walk into the office. I worked in IT at the time and he walked in and would just say, Gina, can I just ask you a question? What do you think? And I felt, I felt quite nervous. You know, I mean, the first couple of times I, I felt quite nervous because I thought, oh, is this a test? Or what should I say? How can I contribute here? Also, I had a level of, okay, well, I'll just answer the question. So I answered the question the best I could. And it became, it became something that was really good. And he invited me sometimes to meetings with different people because I was just answering, I was just telling him what I thought. And I think he wasn't used to people just saying it how it was at the time. But it was complete naivety with, with, you know, with me. So I really appreciated that. That had a big impact on me. This is years and years ago. So I think that there is this sort of almost artificial gap between, you know, people joining an organisation. And if there was more understanding about the human side of work and that, you know, lift people, if you can lift people up, give them a chance, give them a choice. And, and it's not just about, I think when I, when I read things about skills gap, you can learn skills, you can learn all of that. But what coaching, what, what I'm hearing you both saying is the coaching is more about listening to people and really helping them to understand how precious they all are as people and how they can all make a contribution. You know, and it doesn't really matter what school you go to, it's your attitude, your behaviour, your and if you're lucky enough to get somebody who listens to you or, you know, listening, that's, that's such a huge part of coaching, isn't it? I'm curious, Gina, because the thing that's quite often comes out in conversations when we're talking about you know, young people now or young professionals now is, is as if there's like a complete void between uh, millennials and Gen X and baby boomers. And, you know, we kind of put pigeon box. But I, 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 um, I remember talking before about there have always been coaching leaders. Yeah, and you're kind of giving an example of one right there. Someone who we would say leads with a coaching approach and asks people around him or her, 
you know, what, what, what do they think? Not, not because they're being nice, because they genuinely want to know. Like they know that diversity of, uh, of thought is helpful. But so often we're not teaching people, we're not teaching people that that's what leadership or that's what coaching is for. We're kind of, I think that's the other, that goes back to the conversation Chloe and I were, were having um, before you came back on, which was like, there's so much needs to be done to be able to enable people to understand what we mean by the label of coaching. Uh, and it's not just one-on-one exec coaching. Um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an array of behaviors and communication styles that can go from really formal coaching all the way through to a coaching approach to conversations or even casual framing of a conversation, which isn't contracting, but you're basically contracting and helping people understand the difference between coaching and mentoring. You know, the difference being, being that coaching is question-led, mentoring is advice-led. So that kind of stuff, I think, is really important for the kind of democratizing coaching. It is, isn't it? It's a fascinating subject. And I think understanding what coaching is and mentoring is and differences is actually also a very good starting point for people. So leading on from that, then, the democratizing of coaching, how can we make it more accessible to a wider range of people, younger people, so that they can you know, so there is still a little bit, you know, it, it can be expensive, it can be inaccessible. And I know you're both doing great work in this area, but how could it become the norm? How could it become the norm that people are listened to and supported and either mentored or coached as something that's very normal to help them and support them? So the approach that is most often used is to get your company to pay for coaching. That's the, the, cause that removes the biggest barrier to, to coaching, which is the money, but that then requires all of these, all of us like external people coming into different organizations. And I think what it will come down to is coach training is coach training within organizations and training young managers how to coach because once you you are coached you suddenly realize the value in it but the, removing the cost barrier is one thing but as i've said that i've sometimes gone into companies and the ceo has been like right everybody gets a coach which obviously in, in the coaching community we're all like what an amazing opportunity but then none of the young professionals will bite no, nobody will apply for it because they don't they don't yet recognize the value of the coaching yet so even when you remove that cost barrier you've still got the value barrier which is well they don't really know what it what it is because as soon as you coach somebody then for the, for the rest of their lives they get it and they will usually become spokespeople for coaching and talk about it to all of their friends and their families and get people in it so the accessibility point is really important but it's also like how do we communicate the value of coaching without having to give everybody coaching we're comparing to getting a pt which is obviously widely accessible even i've never had a pt before but i know that obviously it makes sense because we could all get fit if we really put our minds to it if we did all the googling and read all the personal fitness books but we just never get around to it and i think that's a similar thing with coaching is that we can read a million coaching books and things but it's just so difficult to do by yourself I mean us as coaches I often get asked do you, can you coach yourself now I haven't met a single coach who said yes to that to that question so I think there's it's kind of a kind of a bit tangent but I think there is like the, the question before the accessibility thing is like how do we communicate the value to everybody without having to put them through coaching themselves yeah no I'm 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 kind of just reflecting what Chloe said it's it's exactly that it's the value but I almost, I, one point of difference is I always feel like you do have to get them to, into some kind of experience, as you said. 
So I don't know. I don't know if there'll ever be an email or a TikTok video or or like an Instagram post or anything that will just be like, this is coaching. This is why you should do it, and this is how we're going to make it available to you. And then everyone's going to flock. Like I reckon, even with that CEO who was like, everyone can have a coach. There was it probably wasn't like everyone can have a coach, and that was like the one line. It was probably like here are the benefits, you know, this is how it would be, this is what it looks like, you know, this is the kind of format of it. And ultimately, it comes down to the the kind of vernacular, right? Like coach immediately for most people is tennis or football or like, you know, the the, the concept of, of a coach it originates from like a, a French word, right? It's like trying to get someone from A to B. And if you're trying to get, if you are a driver, you're taking them there and you're getting them from point A to point B, whereas actually coaching in the way that we're describing it is helping them get themselves there. <laughs> you know, we're empowering them and raising their self-awareness. So they become the driver of, of, of the coach. So I think it is a bit of a, you know, if, if you take it right back, it's about the terminology and that that's confusing. Like, I think if you change the terminology, I don't even know what it would be yet, but kind of re- redefined coaching and called it something else, people would be like, oh, okay, so it's not like, you know, a football coach, like Arsene Wenger isn't the same coach as Chloe, like they're completely different, <laughs> you know what I mean? But a lot of people don't see that. They see it as like, I'm going to be told what to do rather than actually having the space to come up with it themselves. It's like rebranding, but I've never been able to come up with, because people do have a resistance to coaching because there's like unfortunate media around sort of life coaching and things like that. And people just sort of kind of roll their eyes a little bit at it um still maybe not so much with executive coaching because people kind of get that more but it's like how and I've never been able to come up with a with a better name or or a way to describe it I think you're right Charlie it's almost like a re like a coaching rebrand is needed especially for the younger generations for them to for it to be cool for there to be like a cool thing that you have as I was saying that I, there was an amazing experience I had with one of my clients who he went for dinner with his friends and he was they were all comparing what their coaches were talking about and what they were working on with their coaches and I was like that's so cool hopefully that's the future I think this is a really good point. And I think there is a barrier to the word coach and the association. And often, if they don't know, they think they're going to be told something. So they think it's more closer to the mentoring side of things. So there's always a confusion between, so what, what really, what, what is this coaching? And because coaching is a completely confidential space, as you know, then you don't hear that much about it. You hear lots of talk about people getting a coach or an executive coach, but you don't really hear, of course, about what goes on. And I think because of that, it's not a mystique, it's an, an essential part of coaching to create psychological safety and make sure that you're confident talking to your coach and knowing that that's where it stops. So I think that's one of the the, the things that there's a bit of a mystique and a, a bit of a need for more understanding about what it is. But rarely, I think, do you understand that until you've had a really good coaching session with someone and then you suddenly think, oh, okay, gosh, I can see. And sometimes even you can't see it at a coaching session. It's only afterwards, isn't it, that something shifts and it can be something very simple and you think, well, how did that happen? The person was just listening or they were just, you know, throwing in the odd question here and there. So how did that happen? But it can be so transformational, but very hard to describe, isn't it? I think it's a hard thing at any age to get over to someone that hasn't been coached. It's something you need to experience. I like some of the, the co-coaching forums that are around. I think co-coaching is a great idea I mean, you know, you're in the system then, if you like, by the time that you're generally exposed to co-coaching forums. But that's also a good way of 
perhaps using coaching, democratising coaching, if you can get past the training stage, then co-coaching is a cheaper way of doing it. There are lots of things to think about. Just to end on, what do you think is the biggest influencer of creating more accessibility to people, young people or underrepresented people, apart from the good work that you're doing, and globally, you know, how can we reach people that really would benefit from, from coaching? I think there's lots of stuff that is shifting, I think, generally. You know, if we start in in the awareness phase, which is what, kind of what Chloe and I have been talking about, that it's like understanding what it is. And actually, when we were saying, oh, we haven't, haven't been able to come up with a kind of rebrand, there is one kind of educational school of thought, which is called inquiry-based learning. I don't know if either of you have come across inquiry-based learning. But it's essentially the the concept that instead of at school being spoon fed, these are the facts when it comes to the exam, write these facts down when you get asked the question. It's like, okay, the learning is this is the question. Go and find the fact. And where back in the day, you'd be like in the library looking for for it. Now you just kind of type into Google and and you can go away and you can be like, well, okay, if I'm learning about history, um, a particular period, you know, I can go and I I can just Google that and I can go and find out myself. It's, it's that process that of, of getting people, humans from an early age to not wait to be passive receivers of information, but to be seekers of information. And that's already getting people into a coaching mindset. So that kind of inquiry-based learning is, is taking some shape, especially in America, as you can imagine. And, you know, with amazing results. You know, think of the creativity that like primary school children have quite often. You know, they come up with so much so much crazy stuff and great ideas. And, and then quite often when they get into, into a curriculum where it's like, right, you need to learn this, 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 and this. And these will be things you'll be tested on. So like, don't worry about other stuff. Like immediately that shuts down that creativity. And uh, there's some brilliant TED Talks on this. I can't remember the guy who, who, uh, who kind of spoke about it um, most prolifically. But he, he basically is talking about the education system as it is, is essentially like a design for the Victorian age where people would go into very much Adam Smith, division of labor jobs, where they needed to know certain thing and you know how to create X widget or Y widget. Whereas what we're in now is a, an information age where creativity and coming up with new ideas and innovation is so important. So if we can kind of replug from an early stage or reprogram people from early stage so that their creativity and their, their kind of unique thinking is the first thing they go to or the first thing that they're, they're, they're drawn to, then hopefully that will then raise the awareness of what the value of the coaching ethos actually is and then people will be seeking it more as a starting point rather than again waiting for stuff to come to them yeah that's so interesting I I wish I could have an answer to the question of like how do we make it more accessible because there must be something that we're not doing and ideas that we haven't thought of before there's so much there's so much different things going on but we're almost thinking about it from the our perspective rather than thinking about it from the people from the coachee or the future coachee and almost you've got to think like as a young person if you're a 16 18 21 year old from a low-income background and there's something like well maybe I want to get some coaching where do I go first I think it's that's the perspective we need to kind of ask from and developing that critical thinking I have a really good friend called Chloe Francesca and she started a coaching company called Mind Station and all about bringing coaching to young people between the ages of 6 and 11 and she joins sort of like clubs at schools and also parents and things like that. And, and it's kind of interesting because then it's starting that that inquiry mind from a really young age, because what I'm also noticing or have noticed, I've got a, a few clients at the moment who've asked their employer for a coach and they've been like, yeah, of course. 
we'll get you a coach. So it's kind of going back to the point we were saying before about that proactivity. And so how do we develop that proactive nature so that it doesn't just rely on the whole coaching community to just like, you know, shove it in their faces and be like, you really need this, you really want this. But actually, like, I wonder if there's a way in education to try and I mean, it's such a huge question that we're we're grappling with, but to try and get people to be more proactive and to think about, well, what could I do? I work for a company called The Urban Scholars, and it's all about getting young people between the ages of 14 and and 18, and you support them all the way through, and they come every one Saturday every month, all from low-income backgrounds, and you apply for that, and there must be that on the circle program, there must be thousands of programs out there, and some young people find them. So it's like, what do those young people have that maybe others don't, And, and what's happened in their lives that has enabled them to have this curiosity and inquiry curiosity kind of use the same time as like so we almost like we do need to do our job in terms of trying to market and make these incredible companies available to people but also there's something about like how do we develop that curiosity mindset because those are the people that are most hireable that come across the most opportunities I don't know what the answer is to that I wish I I wish I did but it's kind of an interesting thought yeah, it's like the, it's like bottom up is the awareness space because you're right. You know, quite often the young people that come to the circle program are those young people who they've met someone else who's done it and they go, oh, you know, that sounds incredible. It's completely not what I thought a coaching or leadership program or inclusive leadership program would be about. You know, I did I didn't understand that it would be about building trust with someone I don't know and and sharing vulnerabilities with them. And so that's one way, like just raising the awareness. And then that hopefully should kind of create this surge of demand for more coaching, either learning how to coach or being coached. And therefore, there will be more solutions, even more solutions that kind of come to the market, right, for those demographics. And then the other way, and I don't know how much you'll like this, Gina, but the other way is is kind of top down, right? So thinking about the existing executive coaching model and market and framework. And the, the thing that always strikes me is that so often coaches that charge eye-watering sums of money to senior banking execs. Like I just use that because everyone can kind of think about it. They are people who have a have a background quite often in that space because the, the kind of senior exec at that bank or at that big firm likes to know that their coach kind of has some knowledge or has some understanding of their world. And that kind of reinforces the idea that to be a really top senior exec coach, you have to have had a really stellar career before you in a specific industry that you are then going to go and coach in, which is basically the opposite of what, you know, at least Chloe and I, and, you know, we, we don't have it, we don't have as much experience, but just for being slightly younger, but you know, that's kind of the opposite of what we're saying about what coaching is. In fact, the best coaches are the ones who have no context because they are then not going to try and offer, offer their advice. So I think, it, I think there's something to be said about the shift that needs to happen top down in order to democratize coaching. Because you know, we've had CEOs of companies who are like who who get coached by an 18-year-old who's this is the first ever coaching session, and they're like, wow, like I pay my executive coach so much money, and that coaching session that you just gave me was way better than what I've done. <laughs> you know what I mean? And you're like, wait, okay, this is this is kind of crazy. And I think it's almost a bit of a a bit of a a bit of a kind of a mindset shift for the people who have influence within coaching to democratize it. I'd give a shout out like Catherine Tolper, for example, in the Association for Coaching, as an example, we're setting up a, a future leader advisory board with them at the moment for young people from underrepresented backgrounds, because they're really keen to understand, you know, what the demand is and also like what the perception is. And I think that shift in perception will be so important. 
I'm really glad you mentioned that because, and as you know, it's a, something that I'm, I'm really passionate about as well. So building either an advisory board or as there's a, a word or a phrase now called shadow boards. So, and, and I think this is a great thing. And I think, you know, what the Association of Coaching are doing and, and you're doing in building that advisory board. So you've got, you know, a management team and then you bring in, you know, so a shadow board does exactly the same with a, a board structure and you bring a shadow board of young people who don't need to be trained, you know, in, in that, but as being part of that, you get the fresh eyes with the board and it's almost sort of it's almost coaching but you know not saying that those people have to be trained as coaches but to learn from what's going on and the fresh eyes coming in from the shadow board of people who will just ask any question and what what a lovely fresh aspect for a board because boards can get stale because they can oh, this is what's what's expected of us we've grown into these roles this you know we've governance etc but by having a young board or a young advisory board or team working alongside an experienced team we're still learning we're always still learning how powerful is that so if if so many more companies did that so we're looking forward to seeing the results and the progress of the Association for Coaching Advisory Team to see how that works, because I think that's a, a really good leading example of where young people and people in a particularly management role, leadership role, can work together. And I'm sure both will complement each other. It's not going to be a one-way street. It's not about the team educating the young it could probably really reverse actually and the team could learn so much from that this has been an absolute delight is there anything you would like to say to close on or any words of wisdom that you'd like to share I think maybe just for coaches listening to this to be curious and ask yourself the question of, of how you could make your services accessible to more people. It doesn't have to be, you know, all the time. It could be a session every month or whatever. And just play with that idea a little bit and see how you could weave it into what you do to create even more impact than what you're doing already. Yeah. And I would just say, you know, once we kind of deconstruct and demystify what coaching, what we mean by coaching, the democratization of that process is inevitable because what we're saying is it's emotional intelligence in action and young people who who are going to discover about coaching both coaching and getting coached are going to then pass it on to more and more people so it's going to it's going to happen we've just got to be optimistic absolutely and i can't think of two better people to be involved in this thank you so much for this you know your heartfelt both curiosity and desire to bring about positive change it just comes across in huge sun rays, I must admit. And thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. Look forward to hearing more in the future and let's make a big change. Thanks, Gina. Appreciate it. Thank you, Gina. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you.